Welcome back, everybody, to the Legal Weekly Wine, where we talk about the week's hottest legal topics. And this week's hottest legal topics are the testimony, the dual testimony of Donald Trump and Ivanka Trump in the civil fraud trial in New York this week. So that's our hottest legal topic. There's always something else going on, but that's pretty big. So we are going to address all of the ins and outs of what their testimony actually was that we can find what it means, and what the implications are on appeal and for their other cases. I'm Virginia Tarani. I am with Tarani Law LLC because you never need a lawyer. Tell you you do. do. (laughs) 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 Um, And I am joined by co-hosts, Dr. John Vile, who is the Dean of Middle Tennessee State University's Honor College, as well as Chelsea Rogers, who is a recent attorney. Woo-hoo-hoo. Passed the bar um, this summer and is waiting on final, I guess, swearing in yeah, stuff. Yeah, the swearing in <laughs> ceremony. So she just graduated from American University's Co- Washington College of Law. Yes, you Did got I get it. it. Okay, good. Um, is she the only one who's actually reviewed your law materials for preparation yes. for the bar? Yes. Oh, yeah. So you can claim. Maybe you better stop there. 100% rate. <laughs> Truly. 100% success rate. Yes. Yeah. Honestly, it's you're not wrong. <laughs> yeah, everybody, any law students who are listening, um, the Law Unscripted, which is hosting this podcast, we are also putting together um, law school study topics as well as bar review material that will go through the eight core subjects of the bar exam. It will officially be published, we believe, at the very end of November. Um, Um, And Chelsea went through almost all of the program with me. We videotaped together for setting up the bar review classes. We had a lot of fun. Hopefully everyone else will. And we'll learn a lot and pass just like Chelsea did. It was a good time. I mean, it's studying for the bar, but it's as much (laughs) as a good time as that can be. But it was fun. Right. You know, we made the best of it. We did. Absolutely. Okay, so let's get to Donald Trump with a toast, um, a toast to all of the Trumps testifying and making this legal history part of our lives. I am drinking another Maryland wine, another Linganore wine cellar's Mountain Red Sweet Red Wine. So that's what I am drinking today in homage to our state of Maryland. Chelsea, what have you got? I'm joining you with the red, not quite as classy. This is my boxed Franzia chillable red wine. Surprisingly very good. I really like it. Hey, you know, we like good taste. So if it tastes good, then I'm all for it and we'll have to exchange here. Yeah, it's not quite as sweet as what I normally go for. I'm trying to, you know, expand my palate, but it's still good. It's still sweet enough for me. Excellent. And Dr. Vile, do you have your trusty water? I do. Purified drinking water. Um <laughs> I don't know what brand it is. <laughs> Kroger, yes, Kroger. Okay, Kroger, local <laughs> Nothing grocery but the store. Kroger. <laughs> I have um, a paralegal I used to work with was was funny. He, when we got clients that were more difficult, as many attorneys have those clients, um, we would. I would always know which ones they were because he would come and talk to me, and he's like, "I have you know so and so," and I'd be like, "Oh, okay, what's going on with him?" And he would look at me, and he said, "We get clients 
nothing but the best. (laughs) (laughs) And I was like, yeah, okay. The way he would say it would be so perfect too. Just the complete deadpan of the face and then the lift of the eyebrows. I loved it. Delivery, fantastic. It It was great. He could be a comedian. It was good. Okay, so speaking of comedians, um, (laughs) this clown show, it felt like Mm -hmm. um, what the judge Ingrun, and I I know I'm mispronouncing the name, so many apologies, but the judge in this trial basically said at one point, this isn't a rally, right? This isn't a party rally. You're not, this isn't a stump speech. And 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 that's how he treated it. Right. And then another point, he turned to his attorney and said, can't you control your client? Yes. 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 So let's talk about normal courtroom behavior. Um, let's put Trump to the side because we're going to compare. Um, normal courtroom behavior. I am a true trial attorney. That is what I've done for 18 years. I love trials. I love doing that. Um, Chelsea's been a part as the as our intern for a long time of watching the trials, preparing for the trials, learning about trials in law school and how you're supposed to do them. And Dr. Vile has been teaching mock trial courses for a while. <laughs> so for a couple of decades. So the, among the three of us, I think we're, we've got a fairly good span as to what's expected during a trial for the questioning of witnesses, how it normally goes, and what the judge's role is, as well as the attorney's. So let's, let's find this out. Dr. Vile, in your experience, even in preparing mock trials, how do you tell people to work with their witnesses? What are they supposed to be doing for direct examination? Well, direct, you want them to be able to say as much as you can that's favorable to your case. Um, You don't have to ask, you don't ask leading questions on direct, Um, you know. And what is a leading question? Let's clarify that for everyone. It's it's a question that basically suggests the answer. Mm. So, you know, you, it's not, you were at Main 707 Main Street on such and such, weren't you? That's a leading question. Non-leading would be, where were you on mm-hmm. such and such a time? Okay. And But I, I think most of the action, I think, came here, in this case, less on direct than it did on cross. Is, is that your understanding? Well, it's a weird, or, it's or weird. Or did they have cross? They I, didn't. Yeah. This is a classic calling of an adverse witness where the, right. the plaintiff is the New York Attorney General's office, so New York, right. and the defendants are the, the two Trump boys and Donald Trump and the trusts. Those are mm-hmm. the defendants. And what happened is the plaintiff, as they're allowed to do to prove their case in chief, they got to call the defendants. And they did. And the Trumps were the defendants. So it's weird because they're doing a direct examination of an adverse party. And some judges will let you treat them as a hostile witness. Right. Um, And quite honestly, the behavior that Donald Trump exhibited would have been considered by many courts to be he's a hostile witness, which is he's completely against your side and doesn't want to answer your questions. And then they have to do a direct unless the judge gives them the ability as a hostile witness to cross-examine them. But technically, his own counsel 
would have been crossing him, and they did not do any cross-examination except of Ivanka Trump. Right. But there's rumors. she was a very different witness. She was. But but partly she's not a defendant, right? Correct. if If she committed fraud, it was the statute of limitations is over there. Correct. And she did seem to, she had apparently a much more winsome way. Now, what she did, and you'll know better than probably than I would on this, but she did answer a lot of questions with, I don't recall or I don't remember. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, some of the things that she was asked to testify about took place 10 years ago. Right. And involve fairly, you know, not, I mean, large financial matters, but if you handle that all the time, you know, if you ask me what I did 10 years ago on a certain date, I wouldn't be able to tell you. Right. So that whether she did know and didn't say or whether she couldn't recall, it's not nearly as bad a strategy as, well, you're a scumball. I'm not going to answer your question. Or this is a show trial. Let me out of here. Uh, you, you know, you're not supposed to pontificate before a court, mm-hmm. particularly on cross. You know, I'm going to ask you a yes or no question. I'd like you to answer with yes or no. Now, sometimes a witness can say, well, will you give me a chance to explain? Yes. And sometimes you, you know, sometimes they'll say yes, if you keep it short or whatever. But, you you know, your your witness really is not supposed to be in control. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're there to, they're, they're not there to gain, you know, points on a, on, on a political poll. Right. They're there to testify truthfully, you know, under mm-hmm. oath truthfully to matters for which they've been accused. Right. The, the matters it's limited. It's supposed right. to be limited to this case, this right. trial, these fraudulent documents and prepared papers. You know, so did, you know, did you commit this fraudulent act? Well, let me tell you about my sainted mother. Uh, (laughs) Let me tell you about my childhood. I mean, you know, these are interesting things to me and relevant to my life, but not particularly relevant to a trial. Chelsea, in your training, what were you taught about a normal direct or cross of a witness and how they're supposed to be handled in a court. I love this. Yes, I love this because I took a lot of trial ad classes and I really hate doing direct, but I really love cross. And no one who's watched any of our any of our content would be surprised um, because this is what they told us. When you're doing direct, your witness is the star of the show. When you are doing cross, you are the star of the show. Yes. And yeah. the way you position, in the, even down to the little things of where mm-hmm. you position yourself in the courtroom as you're asking these questions in relation, you know, for direct, they're like, try to stay, you know, where you're in the same line of vision. All the attention is on the witness mm-hmm. versus cross where you're being like, hey, look over here. I have things to say. Um so that's basically how we were taught, which is why I love doing cross, because it's basically saying a sentence and saying, isn't that right? I mean, obviously. <laughs> right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> isn't it true that here's the thing I'm telling you is true? Um, so I enjoy cross more, but this was a mess. This whole situation was a mess. And I thought you would like it, all of the irrelevant, relevant issues, because you always say that that's the most common objection that you deal with in trials, which was shocking to me. Yeah, it it is. And I think it is shocking to most law students because they have to go through intensive work for hearsay. 
these out-of-court statements made for the truth of the matter. I mean, half of evidence is spent learning hearsay rules. And the exceptions and all of it. Yeah, and in the end, I go and do law practice, and I was like, why am I always objecting to relevance? 403, baby. (laughs) Uh, Right? It's more prejudicial. It's irrelevant to this case. And a lot of Trump's testimony was irrelevant. Right. It just, you know... I'm judging him as a witness rather than a politician, rather than a Republican. And as a witness, I would have been horrified if I were the attorney. Mm -hmm. Um, Because I tell my witnesses, don't get angry. They are trying to bait you. Whatever you do, stay calm. Because a jury or a judge will give you credit for that. And in this way, Ivanka Trump helped herself. Yes. From her testimony, the Dr. Vial, like you were talking about, most newscasts are saying she was poised, mm-hmm. she was well spoken, she handled herself well, she didn't yell, she didn't make insults. So, of all of the witnesses that were called, she seemed to be the best for both sides, quite frankly. Um, whereas Donald Trump, you know, the Donald Trump Jr. and Eric Trump, they seem to be kind of eh. Witnesses, right? My my great legal term here. Um, <laughs> make sure to publish it. <laughs> yeah. Did I help pay for that tuition? <laughs> what course was that? <laughs> it's what a great legal education is made of. Yeah. Eh. <laughs> so so they were kind of wishy-washy. Mm-hmm. Where their testimony from a trial attorney's perspective, it would have been maddening. For them to continue to say over and over, I don't know. I don't remember. I would have been exasperated. Really, you remember nothing. It, you know, I would have been tempted to, to start increasing my volume. Yeah. To start making a few sarcastic remarks. Uh, <laughs> you know, you're telling me you're the trustee of the business and you don't even know what the business is. It would have been hard. Part of the tricky part here is you don't have a jury. Right, right. And the other thing is, you know, it looks like the judge at the first part of the day really tried to, or before they had a couple of breaks, really tried to keep things under control. Right. And then, I don't know if he intended to or not, but I think the more Trump spoke the more he opened himself up to possible later contradiction. I mean, any of us, if you speak long enough, you're going to say something infelicitous, if not, Mm -hmm. you know, perjurious. Yeah. Um, And what what was sort of fascinating is there were were parts where the judge would say, I'm going to strike this from the record. Well, he is the rec. I mean, this is not That's going him. to a jury, mm-hmm. right? Uh, but I guess it's it's saying I'm not going to consider that part of the answer. You're just, I guess, you're giving in some ways due notice to the other side. You know, if you think that's coming in as evidence, I'm not even going to record it here. Exactly. But but this would this now what what is fascinating is one of Trump's attorneys did give a subsequent press conference and they said how did your witness do and he said i remember it was perfect or it was yeah, great it was the best i've ever had of, right. of any clients and he may have been paying more attention to how much he was going to get paid 
than he was to the truth when he said that. He wasn't yeah. under oath when he said that. <laughs> I agree. As as a trial attorney, I looked at it and and thought to myself, that really would be the worst possible witness I could have because he was out of control. He did say so many things. And like you said, Dr. Vile, the more a witness talks, whoever the witness is, the more likely something will be bad. They'll okay. say something wrong. And Chelsea, I want you to you to talk about this because in prepping witnesses for yes. the, this kind of testimony, what do you normally say? What do you tell them to do? Well, I think it's like not complex advice. This is not groundbreaking, but it's one, answer the question that's being asked and don't give any extra information. Like you just want to answer the question that is asked and that's it, which, you know, clearly it's not, this is not groundbreaking advice, groundbreaking legal counsel, but that's what he needed to do and didn't. I think the New York Times had a really great quote about this. It was like, Trump on the stand was Trump anywhere else, which- you know, I think is a fair statement is that he did not um, adjust for the audience or the venue to which he is speaking. It sounded like a stump speech. It sounded like he was just rambling on and on. At one point, he like misquoted the years he was president. <laughs> like, oh, was that was a rough. Mess. That was a mm-hmm. mess. And, you know, the compliment to that, which doesn't directly relate to this case, but if you're doing a cross-examination, you never want to answer well, almost never want to ask ask a question that you don't know the answer to. Exactly. Because you you may get a lot more than you bargained for, and it may not go the way you're expecting. Right. Yeah. yeah he, he in, in a normal case, a witness would not be allowed to say the things that he did oh. and to say as many things as he did. And I've seen one quote from the judge that has been misquoted many times Mm -hmm. where it was something to the effect of, I don't want to hear you or hear Mm -hmm. from you. Right. Um, And everybody, there have been a lot of people who stop at that where they're like, well, the judge is not even listening to to Donald Trump. So this is egregious. He should recuse himself. Trial Mm -hmm. should be a mistrial. But the rest of the statement was... I only want to hear your answers. Yes. You know, I only want to hear the answers to the questions. So it was, I don't want to hear everything you have to say. I only want to hear the answers to the questions. That's what you're supposed to be doing. So I think it's unfair when the quote has been cut in half. Yeah. Um, because that he wasn't saying, I don't want to hear from you. And he certainly was listening. And as Dr. Vial, as you said, after the breaks, he came back and just sat and listened to it all. He kind of gave up trying to control the testimony that was coming in. And honestly, I think that that was the best response the judge could have had. Um, it's... <laughs> He was being attacked left and right, right? I mean, Donald Trump was, you know, the judge is this, the judge is that, you're doing this. You know, a full verbal attacks on the judge, full verbal attacks on the justice system, full verbal attacks on the the prosecute the plaintiff side the attorney general um and one of which I was very surprised in and I would have been personally very offended was saying about the the attorney general you should be ashamed of yourself 
Um, I would never have wanted that in testimony. I would have been horrified if a witness was saying that, my, my witness was saying that in the trial, because in my mind, if you're saying these things, if you're railing against the other opponent, if you're railing against the other attorneys, the system, the judge, then the people in the system aren't going to look favorably on you. And they have the right to consider how you behave in the courtroom as part of their judgment of credibility of your testimony. The the problem, if I may add here, is Mm -hmm. Trump is, I think, falsely accusing the system of being politicized against him, used as a weapon against him. I don't think that's what, I mean, I think, I think the system is trying to check on, stop illegal behavior, Mm. but I don't think this is a Democrat, Republican, liberal, conservative kind of thing. But what's very scary is the latest thing, one of the latest interviews that Trump has had. Outside of the courtroom. That if he's, Mm -hmm. you know, if he is president again and people come after him, all he needs to do is go to the Justice Department and have them come up with the bogus indictment, and that's going to seal their fate. Right. If if this is what our system has come to, we do not have a credible legal system. I mean, that will, I do, and I don't think it has come to that. But but we cannot afford for people to. And you know, one one example of this, and and I know there you know there are a lot of different sides on this, but my understanding is when. When Biden came into office, who wants their son indicted, right? Who wants their son investigated? Yeah. And if you wanted to protect your son or daughter, you would probably seek somebody more favorable. He said, Trump appointed this guy as prosecutor. I'm not going to interfere with that. Right. Uh, The law is not supposed to be a handmaiden to politics. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's supposed to, you know, search for truth. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And and in this, I I think um, one of the most interesting articles and and quotes, I mean, I've been pouring over these things because we can't watch it. And Mm. personally, I'm devastated that we can't watch it so I could really see all of it. Um, So we're getting pieces here and there of what people were able to see and write down. And one of the articles, um, I think it was in the Daily Beast, and I normally don't read that paper, but it was more of a personal opinion and just kind of like we're doing is what is our take on the, on the system and what happened. Mm -hmm. And his, his comments were interesting. It was In my experience, the extent of Trump's behavior is far outside the norm for witnesses. Ranting against the court system, prosecutors, and the court during testimony would normally be considered highly unusual. And it's even more unusual that his lawyers appear to be supporting his behavior. But the most interesting, and Chelsea, you and I have talked a lot about this. So I'm going to say this as part of the article and then get your take on it. Okay. This this article says, I've seen far less egregious behavior by a defendant result in a request that the defendant be screened for mental competency. Yes. Okay. Yes. So my first thought was, and you can correct me, maybe it's my lack of experience. The judge's comment to me didn't seem that out of line. In full context, what he said, I was like, I feel like I've heard judges in far less contentious like car accident cases being like, we don't need to talk about that. Can you just answer this? Like, I feel like I have yeah. heard that in really small courtrooms and really small cases. So that didn't 
catch me as hot. But yes, his behavior, I think if this was anyone else, they would have had a psych eval done so quick because this is not competent behavior. This is erratic. And I don't think if it wasn't Trump that he would have been allowed to, one, continue ranting and in raving the way he was without some interference. And like I said, I think a psych eval would have absolutely been requested. May I give a counter possibility that I'm not sure that I believe, but I'm going to try it. Okay. Could Trump now, and it doesn't work for this case as much as it would for the criminal cases, but could he be crazy like a fox? Hmm. The, The only thing that could keep him possibly out of jail might be being president, and he says he's not going to do it, but to try to pardon himself, which right. might or might not work. The Constitution is silent on it. Now, I don't think that would get him out of the civil case. It doesn't. It doesn't because, excuse a civil or, or case a, or a state. Or, or, or a state case. Uh-huh. But if his main concern is that the case down in Mar-a-Lago mm-hmm. or the election interference cases could actually result in some kind of penalty that there'd be no way, you know, no way out of other than to say, well, surely you're not going to put a president in jail. Right. Uh, Maybe there is a certain logic to it. Mm -hmm. Um, And I don't know that. um, But yeah, Yeah. it's certainly interesting. And he said, so uh, apart from his behavior, let's talk about the things that he seemed to admit or deny. The the statements, I mean, he said a lot, like countering the judge and the system, et cetera. But some of the actual testimony he gave, it's all testimony, but the the meat of it, the real mm-hmm. answers to the questions rather than the rambling, irrelevant information to the questions. He um he did admit that he was responsible for preparing the 2014 financial statement. And he did appear to admit, and this this was really interesting to me, where his children, his his boys both said, well, I blame it on the accountants. Right. It was the accountant's job, right? You know, we prepare these statements, but they're the ones who do finances. We employ the best of the best. We rely on our accountants. We trust them. They tell us what, that this is what it's supposed to be. We sign off on it. So their tactic was, it's not me or dad. It's them. Trump didn't do that. Um, he he sort of did with the the accountants where he said, well, they, you know, they had due diligence. They were supposed to do their own research. So whatever I put down, they were supposed to research it. And if they didn't agree, then they shouldn't have let us sign it. But then he was saying that everybody in the Trump organization, all this trust and the the companies that are being run by the Trump children and then sometimes by Donald Trump when he wasn't in office, that they, everybody, they are responsible for detecting internal fraud and reporting it, correcting it. Um, so he, he put it back, probably without realizing it, back on his sons who were in charge of running the organizations. The, the other thing he did, Virginia, that you might want to address, because I'm a little unclear about it. Mm. The statements, apparently, each statement that is filed is filed with some kind of disclaimer Yes, that you need to do your own due diligence. Now, my understanding is that that really doesn't work 
legally as a very good defense in this case. But to someone who's not in the law, it it sounds sort of credible. Well, you know, I told you this is my guess, but you better check on it yourself. Yeah. Uh, so maybe you're as responsible as I am. What what do you think about that that defense? Because that was a yeah. partial defense. I think it was the best defense they have, honestly. And one of the accountants has already been convicted of fraud um, based on these Trump statements. But for me, I look at it as this, right? Accountants have due diligence. They have fiduciary duties to their clients financial in the financial sector. They have a fiduciary duty to make sure that the accounts are right, to correctly advise them, et cetera. And when they sign, think of your tax preparations, right? If you use someone to help with your taxes, they sign. You sign and they sign. But the idea that the federal government has when you're doing your taxes is if they've prepared it, you've also looked at it. And you've signed that you agree with that. And it doesn't excuse an individual who signed their tax returns. Now, usually there's some kind of indemnification clause where the accountants will have to help defend against a lawsuit or any kind of proceedings against them for their taxes. And I think that's what they're basically saying here is like, look, we don't do numbers. They do numbers. I don't know how to calculate them. Um, I'm not good with that. I'm good at running the business. So they take care of the numbers. And honestly, as a business owner, I feel for it because I have a bookkeeper and I don't go over all of the books every day or even every month. She tells me what's going on, if we need more money, if we are using too much money, how the, what the state of affairs is in our business. And I'm supposed to look over it, though, as part of my ethical duties to my clients. The, the, the one other defense that Trump makes that I think has some validity is now it, it doesn't help by saying, you know, it's not going to help you if you claim you have 30,000 square feet when you only have 10,000, right. but he makes an argument which is almost peculiar to him. I am a brand. Mm. My name is on towers right. and you really can't monitor, you know, that in and of itself has a monetary value that a typical accountant yeah. is not going to catch. And right. I think that may be as strong an argument. Again, it doesn't work with the square footage. Right. But with some of it, it does. You know, Trump brand is worth something right now. <laughs> Agreed. And and it's hard because some it's he was saying you're absolutely right, is he says, I think that the statements of financial condition were very good, were actually somewhat conservative, and mm -hmm. in some cases, very conservative. And in that, that statement and some others that he said, well, those were very, he agreed that some were a little too high, some, but then he said some were a little too low. And, and he's in a catch-22, because if he says that they're too high, he's admitting fraud. But if he says they're too low, he's admitting he underpaid taxes, yeah. right? So his value should have been higher and he should have paid higher taxes based on the fortune that he has. Yeah. So if we value things the way that he does and he says that, you know, they're very, very low, um, he says the judge had it at 18 million. This is at the um, Mar-a-Lago. 
The judge had it at 18 million and it is worth say, I say 50 to 100 times more than that. So I don't know how you got those numbers. He says he thinks it's between a billion and a billion five. That's what he testified to. And the way the judge seemed to look at it was he said at one point something to the effect of, I've already ruled that those are wrong. You should go back and look at it or perhaps read it for the first time. Um, so he got a little snarky with with Donald Trump on that. But but it's true because the, the judge has already ruled that the statements were fraudulent. And for Trump to continue to testify when you can parse through his testimony that while even that was wrong, it should have been higher, he's testifying that, yes, it's a fraud, and actually, I'm still trying to defraud people. This is so a you current my fraud. So you Virginia, yes? What? Ozymandias. No. Do, you know, do either of you know this? So Shelley has this poem about going out into the desert, and they find this column and it has, I am the great Ozymandias, I may be misprint, Ozymandias or Ozymandias, I am ruler of the world, whatever. And then the comment is, you know, it's there in the desert sand by it. He has valued himself as this great guy. And now we don't even know who he is other than Shelley has written a poem about him. Oh, interesting. So it, it's not, you know, with someone with Trump's ego, mm -hmm. it's easy to see why he might value his property much higher than other people would value it. Right. And not be alone in that respect. Yeah, it, it is a hard valuation. But I think what, what the judge is trying to do in his prior opinion with the summary judgment, as well as the way that he's listening, is say, look, you can't you can't get around some of these numbers. Like you're saying, if it's 30,000 square feet, it's 30,000 square feet, but it's not. If it's 11,000, you know, whether you want to continue to tell me it's 30,000, whether you want to continue to tell me that Mar-a-Lago is worth more, I don't believe you. And you shouldn't be able to put these hopes and dreams into paperwork and defraud people based on it. Um, one of the most damaging pieces of Ivanka's testimony, I think, was that she was saying, oh goodness, it was one specific deal. And she she had an, they showed her an email. How they tracked down all these emails is incredible to me because it goes back to 2011, 2012, 2013 of her doing specific dealings. And there was an email where one of the, the banks or an investor, I can't remember who it was, was saying, well, we're not willing to do this deal unless there's a guarantee that he's worth at least X amount of money. Right. And her- wanted or 2.5 or- I think that's right. Or you had right. that much, it was like liquid assets or mm -hmm. it, it, it was probably total value. Yeah. Right. And she, and she was trying to get it down. Exactly. So she wrote to somebody else. Maybe it was Donald Trump. I can't remember. But then there was, the, well, I'm scared to value it at this. I don't think we can because we don't seem to be worth this much money. What do we do? And there was a back and forth about, well, OK, well, now we'll value it at 1.5 or whatever it was. But to me, that's hard. I don't think that helped. I think that actually hurt the case because it was someone in charge of the company trying to make up numbers. Well, let's let's call it even and split the difference, you know, split the baby and put it at one five. 
Well, why? What did you base that on? It basically sounds like you put two numbers together and then split them in the middle rather than doing an accurate valuation of this seems to be kind of loosey-goosey way to do finances than something credible and true. Now, Chelsea, what I want to ask you about is what would be the difference? Do you think the testimony for Donald Trump would have been different had this been a jury trial? No, I don't. I think he would have been who he is. I do think the attorneys might have tried to control him more, though. I really do think that they might have tried to modulate and advise him better. I mean, I'm I'm sure they did, but he just kind of is who he is. I think, unfortunately, or fortunately, depending on how you're looking at it, I suppose, um, I don't think it would have... I think he acts the same if there's a crowd or if there's an audience of one. And so he was going to do what he was going to do on that stand. But I do think if there was a jury to be influenced, the attorneys might have put more effort in trying to guide him. I think so, too. I honestly think in most most cases, the witness is not allowed to yeah. ramble and say whatever they want to say. There are usually objections, irrelevant, prejudicial. Yeah. Um, the jury could be prejudiced by what he's saying that's not in response to my question. Yeah. The judges in my cases that I've had for 18 years would say, we're going to strike that testimony. Yeah. You have to disregard it. I'm going to give a limiting instruction. But for yeah. a witness like this, it's my experience that a judge would admonish the witness yeah. many times of, you know, stick to the answer, because that's what the jury can hear. According to evidence rules, the jury should only be listening to the answer to the question that's relevant. Yeah. They're not allowed to make statements about the judge or the clerk or the judicial system. And if they do, they'd be either completely admonished, held in contempt, removed from the witness stand, and sometimes taken out of the courtroom. Yeah. Because if you can't control yourself, I had one, um, to give a small example, I had one great case early in my career where we, we successfully argued that the term victim shouldn't be used because right. we weren't sure, the, the defense was that we weren't sure this person was actually a victim because we yeah. didn't know if it was a crime that was committed. It was complicated, but the detective got up and testified and three times he kept saying victim. Well, we talked to the victim. We did this with the victim. You know, we, we met her at the hospital. And I objected each time. There's a ruling that says you can't say the word victim because it will improperly prejudice yeah. the jury into yeah. believing that there is a crime that was committed by my client. And on the fourth time that he said it in front of the jury, I will never forget the judge stood up and at the bench and he pointed his finger at the door and he said in front of the jury, I have told you three times already, you cannot say that word, get out and don't come back. And he was removed. Yeah. And that was just for saying one word. That was, you know, he was set, told not to say. So in this case, if Trump is on the stand in front of a jury in his criminal cases, I think a judge and the attorneys would have to be much more careful because what witnesses say Absolutely. influence the jury. And there's always a question of, well, if you're ranting against the judge and you agree with Trump, then you will find against the whole judicial system. Yeah. And that's not allowed. So in this case, I think he actually set himself up well for the appeal. Um, yeah. What's going to happen? We know it's going to be appealed, right? I mean, of course. 
if he's found to be, you know, whatever damages are set against him, now, there when will you be said he's setting himself up, you mm -hmm. mean the judge or you mean Trump? Judge. The judge okay. set okay. himself up in a I favorable way. I thought that's what way. you meant, but it wasn't clear. Yeah, okay. it's it's hard. I did say yeah. it in a little odd phrasing, yeah. Um, yeah, no. where I think he he is almost guaranteeing or or much more setting himself up in a good light for the appeal, where the judges will say, "Look, the judge gave so much consideration yeah. to this. He could have stopped the whole thing. He could have removed Trump from the stand. He could have held him in contempt, and he didn't. But." The judge is the, still the fact finder. Exactly. That's the person who is going to consider and deal on your fate. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't want to be railing against the judge. And didn't we talk to Chelsea earlier about mm -hmm. this, that generally decisions about matters of fact are not a subject to review as matters of law. Is that correct? On appeal. Yes, right, yeah, sorry. Yeah, yes. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the judge is, in fact, the finder of fact mm -hmm. here. Yeah. And to the extent that they're not not nearly as likely to question that as they would, you know, was right. this a proper witness? Did you, you know, that sort right. of thing. Yeah, the appeal is not, we just didn't, we disagreed with the outcome. Let's relitigate the whole case. Right. There needs to be some abuse of discretion right. or blatant mistake. Yeah, blatant misconduct, abuse of discretion, those are great keywords of on review, there's great deference paid yeah. to the finder of fact because the appeal judges, appellate judges usually say, look, we weren't there. We didn't see the testimony. We weren't able to review the demeanor and the behavior and the character of the witness. We can just read a transcript. So we're going to give deference to what the finder of fact believed who he assigned to be credible, who he decided wasn't credible. We're not going to question those decisions. We're going to question only if there was a mistake of law or if there's a blatant disregard or, you know, problem with the yeah. facts that no one could have believed. And there was some kind of prejudice by the judge, which is what Trump will have to do. The appeal yeah. will have to stay with the judge was prejudiced against us. The entire case has to be thrown out because there was no way he was going to be a neutral party. Right. I think is the only appeal that that would work in this case. But but truly, I mean, it, it baffles me of if you're yelling at the judge, how do you think he's going to find in your favor? Right. It, it just doesn't make any logical sense. And I, okay, I have to tell another story because I've been a trial attorney. So it, you know, it brings back things. I had, <laughs> as a prosecutor, I had a, a witness or I had a, a case. It was just this little bitty case of like failure to return rental property, right? He kept the leased car, the rented car. And it seemed like a nothing case, but the guy was representing himself. And I was like, oh, all the cases I got to do, it's this one, Right. We do it in, he wants a jury. So we do this case and the guy was nutty. And he kept, he was grandstanding, kind of like Trump. He was grandstanding, was making large gestures. His questions and his answers were very exaggerated. It was, I'm the victim, I'm a martyr. Um, on and on, he even held up um, his pants to show the jury the ankle monitor he was wearing. Um, it was quite, it was a show. It was really a show. And I told the jury at the end, we were doing closing arguments, and I was like, you're the, you're the fact finders. You get to decide who's credible. 
And that's based on the behaviors you've seen in court today. You can, you can decide if you liked the defendant and if based on what he's doing, you thought it was credible, you thought he was nice, you thought he was trying to pull a fast one. You know, we went on of the behavior of the witness and the defendant is fair game. And not only did they come back with a verdict of guilty, but it shocked everyone when the jury gave him a year and a half as a sentence. And everybody said, nobody gets a year and a half for failing to return rental property. Nobody, but they hated him. They absolutely hated him. They watched his behavior. They thought he was grandstanding. They didn't like him at all. And that was the result is he got a, a higher sentence than anyone I've ever heard of for failing to return rental property. So anyway, I don't think it's a very wise decision. I don't think it was a good trial tactic. Any other thoughts? No. The peanut gallery is very quiet today. We have I'm lots speechless. Of trials I'm coming speechless. up. So. <laughs> we do. We do. We're all on edge. So this this is the first, right? This is the first trial, um, and the first the the. His, well, no, it's not actually. Well, that's you, true. You, you, you had you You're had the civil. Right. You had another civil trial. Another corporate business For, one, right? Mm -hmm. Then you have a sexual. Oh no! Mm. Yeah, Eugene I mean, Carroll. Yeah. Yes. 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 Chelsea, Which how is going we into the second round, right? Yes. Yes. With with he's continuing mm -hmm. to do what he's already been convicted of done. Yeah. You're absolutely right. Yeah, I think the the historic. So it's not the first one. Glad you corrected us. So we're fully accurate. But it is the first time he's testified under oath at trial yes. rather than just deposition. Um, so to me, that is historic. I mean, to have, I think the only other president, former president, who's done testimony at a trial is Teddy Roosevelt. Oh. I believe. And I was going to guess it would be Bill Clinton, but I don't know that he actually. I don't had think to he testified. I, I, I'm, I'm not sure. Yeah, with the Monica Lewinsky scandal, I, I believe it did end up in trial, um, at least with some. Well, there was the who was flowers, the lady? Yeah, there were two other people that that yeah. basically one on he's he's making false claims here that that hurt their reputation. Yeah, yeah, there were the there was at least another woman who had recorded the call. I think with mm -hmm. Monica Lewinsky. Yeah, yes. But I, I think he truly is. I think Teddy Roosevelt was one. And if I remember the the article, well, everybody look it up. It's a fun little um, sidebar is I think he was pounding his fist on yeah. on the witness stand and on the with a gavel or whatever it was. It was quite entertaining. He um, was a larger than life figure. <laughs> he it, was. He's actually a little like Trump yeah, in that is. it was it was said. And I can't remember if it was his daughter. It may have been his daughter. But he wanted to be the bride at every wedding, the corpse at every funeral, and the baby at every christening. <laughs> that's that's great. That's really great. Well, we've we've got another bombastic former president, um, and we're going to see where where that takes him. The next part is next Monday, I believe, the 13th of November. We'll start the defense case. And I mm -hmm. believe we're set to hear again from at least one of the Trump children, um, maybe more. So it will be interesting to see what their testimony is 
on defense versus plaintiff. But Dr. Vile, as you said earlier, they get to cross. Yeah. Yes. They get another chance to question him as the plaintiffs because they get to cross-examine. So it's it's yet another chance to see what testimony and evidence comes and out. Let's, let's mention also mm-hmm. we got at least three cases now. I believe one of them has been decided on a technicality. The they're, the cases that are challenging the elector schemes. Mm. Okay. Well, I'm sorry. The the 14th Amendment case. Yes. Colorado um, and Minnesota. So, right. Right. But my understanding is that in Minnesota, the court has ruled that the laws of Minnesota do not permit a person to be dismissed from the ballot at this stage, that the mm. argument has to be made later. Uh-huh. And my other understanding is that Trump has actually made an argument maybe in in one of the other 14th Amendment cases, that what should happen is he shouldn't be excluded from the ballot, but if he were to win the election, it would then be challenged. Oh, fascinating. Which, which, of course, the the state is arguing very strong. You know, they're saying, well, talk about chaos. If you let it get to the stage where he would be reelected and then, and then the court would have to come in and throw it out, you know, that would be very problematic in terms of, you know, what the what role the court should play in a democracy. So yeah. it's it's getting interesting. And, you know, this is one of the few times where we're someone who's a scholar. Now, I realize the scholars were also attorneys, but, you know, we, we feel that we have so little control over the world. But here. Here, two scholars come up with a theory that is credible enough that at least it's being litigated in three states, and it might actually keep a candidate off the ballot in in one or more. At least one, yeah. 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 So, yeah. It, you know, that's a, that's a pretty fascinating development. Mm. And I know as final developments, I believe you have a couple of books of your own yeah, that I was going to just mention... You know, not that most of your readers are going to want to do this, but I, I just read a wonderful book, and I don't, yeah, it's not going to. There you go. That? Okay. Law and Religion in Colonial America. It's by Scott Douglas Gerber at Northern, I'm sorry, Northern Ohio. And he does, these are five colonies that he deal, deals with in terms of, you know, we know about the, the Establishment Clause and the Free Exercise Clause. And what he says which I need to go back and revise some of my notes. Often, you know, we when we think of religion's tolerance in the United States, we track it back to John Locke, mm. to, you know, Rousseau mm. or some of these philosophers. And he makes an argument that I've never seen before, but I think is correct. He doesn't actually footnote the assertion. And I have a review of this, by the way, on the First Amendment uh, encyclopedia online. But he says that no country in Europe adopted more laws related to restrictions on religion than did England in the hundred years or two prior to the settlement of the United States. That, you know, because they had successions of Protestant and Catholic kings and the Catholic king would say, you know, we're going to go back to this. And the Protestant would say, no, we're going to go to the prayer book. And one would say, you have to pledge allegiance to to the king. And the other would say, we got the Pope in here as well. And he says that this is the background that produced Roger Williams in Connecticut, mm-hmm. William Penn in mm. Pennsylvania and Delaware, and then 
he contrasts those, those colonies with Connecticut and Massachusetts, where they favored freedom for fellow members of the Congregationalist Church. Interesting. And he also makes an interesting distinction, which I have seen before, uh, but a distinction between the Puritans and the Pilgrims. The Puritans stayed within the Church of England, what we, the Episcopal Church. They were trying to refine it and make it better. Mm. The Pilgrims basically were washing their hands and saying, we're going to a new land and we're going to start over. They just left. So, yeah. Yeah. So that's. And then I read a, I'm reading another article right or book right now by Cody Cooper and Justin Dyer called The Classic and Christian Origins of American Politics. Huh. And he argues counter to a lot of political theorists that natural rights was not as distinct from natural law as many people think. Mm. And that particularly mm. the early American founders uh, and he cites particularly uh, John Dickinson, even Thomas Jefferson, he believes, was closer to natural law thinking in the traditional sense than he was to some of the, the thinking, that, particularly to Hobbes. He's, and, and I think he's right there that, you know, colonists almost uniformly, they would quote John Locke, mm -hmm. who indicated that, yes, there was a natural law even in the state of nature. Whereas for Thomas Hobbes, the only natural law was self-preservation. Mm. Uh, it really wasn't a kind and of And Locke was the one who came up with the phrase, what, life, liberty, well, and not the pursuit of happiness, but what, know, the pursuit of property? property. Yeah, or the ownership yeah, I, I of property. I don't know if he came up with the phrase, but, right, the three main purposes for government, as he understood it, were preservation of life, liberty, and property. All of which, he said, if you were in an anarchical state of nature— would be you would be unable to preserve your your life would not be security secure your property would not be secure nor would your liberty be i love that you're a scholar and we get all of these um good like well three let me tell you the other one that, that i just started reading <laughs> and and this for this for laypersons would be an easier book there we go uh, democracy awakening Notes on the State of America by Heather Cox Richardson. I'm just getting into it, but she's basically trying to make an argument that, which I think is valid, that, you know, if there's any core principle in America or a set of principles, it comes out of the Declaration of Independence. Mm -hmm. And, you, you know, Lincoln thought that he has one of its interesting analogies that he borrowed from the book of Proverbs that the Constitution is the frame of silver, which is meant to accent the apple of gold. And the apple of gold to him are the, is the principle of equality and rights that's articulated in the Declaration of Independence. Hmm. So, oh, all right. So I've good reading. It. Yes. Okay. Well, thank you both for joining us. Um, we, will be, we will be back next week with the Legal Weekly Wine. And then... We're hoping that the legal stories kind of pause themselves for Thanksgiving yeah. because we'd like to take a break on Thanksgiving. So the idea is that we'll have another next week, see what happens with the Trump's testimony on the defense side, um, and then wish everybody a happy Thanksgiving. But it's good to be with you. Have a wonderful happy hour rest of your evening and your weekend. This is Virginia Tarani. I'm joined with Dr. John Vile and Chelsea Rogers, and this is The Legal Weekly Wine.